Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be talking uh, with Professor Christine Yestel. Professor Christine Yestel is a professor of philosophy at Temple University. She's known for for her expertise in the field of hermeneutics, 19th century philosophy, aesthetics, and phenomenology. And today she's here to talk with us about a wonderful book she wrote with Dalia Nasser called Women Philosophers in the Long 19th Century, the German Tradition. Uh, Christine, welcome to New Books Network. Thanks so much. Uh, Before we start uh, the interview, can you tell us a little about yourself and uh, how this book came about? Sure. So um, I'll do that in the order of the questions asked. So a little bit about myself. As you can hear, I speak with an accent. I'm from Norway. That's where I grew up in Oslo, Norway. Um, but I live and teach philosophy today in in the United States at Temple University in Philadelphia. Um, I have been working on German philosophy, mostly European philosophy, as we sometimes say. And I've mostly done historical work. And that's how I met um, Dahlia, who was also teaching for a little while in Dahlia Nassar um, at a at Villanova University in Philadelphia. And we became friends and our friendship lasted even as she moved to, to Sydney. And Dahlia too does German philosophy primarily. So we have a lot of overlapping interests. Then to the book. Yeah, yeah. 19th century women philosophers, the German tradition. Yeah, so both Dahlia and I were doing European philosophy. And doing European philosophy, 19th century philosophy, means teaching, writing about philosophy that's primarily written by men. Actually, there were or are or were no women at all in the 19th century canon. And then both Dahlia and I, on in our different university academic settings, started feeling very frustrated that there were no women at all available to teach. Our early modern philosophers, people who teach and do scholarship on 17th century philosophy, 18th century philosophy, they had dug up lots of strong women philosophers. So syllabies in early modern philosophy could be 50-50 men and and women. But then there was this idea that once the French Revolution happened, there was a bit of a, or after the French Revolution, there was a bit of a conservative pushback. So that women were no longer able to write philosophical works in the way they had been. Now, Dahlia and I both had a very strong sense that this could not be the case. Why would women, after the French Revolution, stop thinking and stop publishing? It had to be about the reception and not the historical period itself. So Dahlia and I made a plan. The plan was that I was going to fly into Sydney. We were going to give ourselves a couple of weeks, work nonstop on trying to dig up as many women philosophers we could in our period, 
and see if there was enough material here to do some serious work on these women. And I think it took about an hour and a half, and then we knew that we had something. These women were not hard to find. They were hiding in plain sight. They were not hiding at all, actually. They were out there, available. And their works are just awesome. And uh, you're absolutely right, because when I was reading the book, there were a lot of these women that I didn't know that was completely new to me, or those that I knew. I kind of knew them more as activists rather than philosophers. And you make the point in the book that we tend to focus on their life rather than on their thoughts. But that's something we'll talk about as we go ahead. Um, you know, one question I have is that in the book, you, you, you write that women philosophers pursued philosophy in dialogue with life rather than in abstraction. So I was wondering if you could expand on that. And uh, is it a correct assumption to, to, to kind of conclude that that's the reason that women philosophy was more, had more praxis, was more practical, let's say. We had a lot of women activists back then. Good question. So women at a time were, I mean, Dolly and I are covering a long period here. We're covering what we call the long 19th century, which is a term we borrow from the literature people. So we cover the period basically from the French Revolution to World War I. And women's education in this period changed. But at no point were they able to take an education that would qualify them for academic positions. So women who were interested in philosophy would have to study on their own or with tutors, discuss philosophy, read, um, write outside of academia. Now, of course, that's awful that they were not allowed into academia. But we all know... I mean, everyone who's in an academic setting know that when we're in academia, we tend to do most of our writing, most of our, our work is geared towards other academics. So we write for other people working in our field. These women couldn't do that because they were barred from universities. So if they were going to do philosophy, there was no point writing for other philosophy professors. They were writing philosophy for the people. Some were feminists. Some were political philosophers. And they their work would often be a mix of philosophical work and activists. But even the people who do, the philosophers who do metaphysics or epistemology or ethics or aesthetics, write in a way that is much more open, more inviting, and addresses directly people who are not necessarily in an academic context. And that's a refreshing change from the many of the male philosophers at the time. So a lot of women could not go to university. So what educational venues or opportunities were available to women at that time? Um, again, a good question. And again, a, a question, I guess, that cannot be um, answered universally. So every story is a little bit different. Um, in the beginning of the century, 
most women philosophers that we have come across dependent on private tutors if they came from families that could afford that or and or brothers fathers relatives and friends who would give them the kind of time and commitment um, that is required for a more systematic deeper education in some cases like Germaine de Stahl who Madame de Stahl as she's often known uh, she was from an incredibly affluent and privileged background her mother was um, well educated had her own salon her father was the minister of finance uh, in France and the family had resources to the best tutors available in Europe so in that case, she gets basically the best training available in Europe, but not in a university setting. In addition, her mother's salon was open to the intellectuals of the time. So everyone who was somebody in, in France in this time period would come to Germaine de Stahl's home and sit there and discuss philosophy and literature once a week. And the young Germain was available to, to play around and after a while be part of the discussion. So that's the beginning of the century. And then towards the end of the century, with <clears throat> philosophers or the early 20th century, with philosophers like um, Edith Stein or Gerda Walter, women were allowed to take a BA, as we call it today, a master's maybe, and even the small PhD. But in the German system, then and now, they have two PhDs. One is for um, for people who just want a very high degree of education, and the other one is for academics. And you cannot get, or for people who are really ambitious and want to apply for academic jobs. And you cannot get a job in a university system without having the habilitation, the second PhD. And for women, this was not an option. So at that time, they got an education, but they were still barred from entering the university system themselves as teachers. Um, I'd like to know about how male philosophers thought about female philosophers' uh, thoughts. But before that, uh, is it, we, we, we tend to, as, as we said earlier, we tend to know more about their lives rather than their thoughts. So this fascination with female philosophers' lives, that's also part of this patriarchal bias that women maybe do not produce good philosophy. Is that why there's more, let's say, fascination with the personal lives rather than their thoughts? Well, that's certainly one explanation. Um, another explanation that would be a bit more charitable, maybe, um, would be that many of these women led quite exceptional lives. I mean, they were trailblazing women who broke all expectations, who were strong, who were determined, and who went to great lengths to fulfill and realize their dreams. So for many of these women, there are very, very interesting stories to tell. Now, should this come in the way of us paying attention to their philosophy? Of course not, but that's the way it has been. 
um, traditionally. Their biographies have gotten a lot of attention. Their philosophical work, their works, which is why we know about them today, has often gotten less attention. Let's talk about some of these male philosophers. You 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 talk about some of them. We have Hegel, we have Theodore von Hippel, if I'm pronouncing the names correctly. Uh, like for example, Hegel said in the philosophy of right that women are not made for higher sciences. So can you talk about the general zeitgeist of the time and how established male philosophers uh, thought about female philosophers? Yes, I'm happy to do that. So this is an area where um, Dalia Nassar and I were up for some surprises when we were doing this work. So when we were students um, ourselves, we will read works by Kant, by Fichte, by Hegel. And every now and then, you stumbled upon these passages where the philosophers are talking about women. And what they have to say is not nice. Um, in Kant, Fichte, and Hegel's case, they all agree that if a woman seeks education or wants to do philosophy, she is no longer a proper woman. She's not living out her womanly nature. Um, they basically, the tr- from Fichte or from Kant, Fichte and Hegel, we have Schopenhauer, we have Nietzsche. It's a tradition of systematic misogyny, in my point of view. Now, when we were in university, both Dahlia and I were told over and over again that these philosophers were simply children of their time. This is how people thought. The big surprise we had is that this is not true. It's a complete myth. Um, In this time period, even in the early part of the time period, we had feminists or women-friendly philosophers who were both women and men. And you mentioned, for example, Theodor von Hippel. And Hippel is interesting because he was a friend of Kant. He had dinner with Kant in Königsberg. He was the mayor of the town. And he wrote a couple of really flaming feminist treatises. He looks at what women have achieved in history. And he claims that women should be part of public life, should write philosophy. There are no parts of human life that should be um, that should be uh, guarded on the basis of gender. So, what does this tell us? It tells us that the philosophers we know, when they talk about women and women's lack of intellectual capacities, they were not necessarily children of their time. There were different positions available, and they chose the more conservative positions that were available. They knew about these discussions and they still stuck to views that back then and today are are not okay. And we need to hold them accountable for that. We cannot just say that they these critical thinkers who questioned everything all of a sudden were just children of their time. They were not, and we need to ask that deep and difficult question of why they chose the most conservative 
or even reactionary position available. So uh, you sort of touched upon the next question that I wanted to ask, that if it was a product of the time or it was, uh, it was a conscious, let's say, effort on their behalf to kind of uh, put down female philosophers or kind of look down on their philosophy. But uh, how, how did women philosophers challenge uh, let's talk about something else. How did women philosophers challenge the, let's say, the proper format of philosophy or the proper uh, medium of philosophy? They, they, they established canon of philosophy. I mean, they, 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 they were not only writing books, but they were also writing, let's say, drama, art, poetry, which all can be counted as philosophy in their work. Can you talk about that aspect of their work? Yes, absolutely. So both some male philosophers at the time, and women philosophers were experimenting with a lot of different genres. So in the Enlightenment, we have, for example, Lessing, who would write philosophy and would write drama. And this this was the case through, throughout the, the tradition. But for women, it was generally easier to get their work published if it was classified as literature, drama, or not philosophy or science. Um, some will publish work that isn't classified as philosophy. Some will publish hardcore philosophy, even though that was difficult. And some will start discussing the relationship between philosophy and literature. This is something we find in Germain de Stahl, we find it in Güntherode, we find it in Bettina Bantano von Arnim. And all three of them will say, we write philosophy, we write literature, but literature is also a kind of philosophy. So they're a little bit sneaky. They appropriate poetry, literature, and turn that into a or another philosophical genre. But and they definitely it, met with less res- were met with less resistance if they mm-hmm. published literature than 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 straightforward philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I guess I had a conversation with someone else last week, and I think that's one of the issues that she also mentioned that they used they they had different strategies to publish their work. One of them was to publish under anonymity. The other one, just to 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 publish like correspondence, maybe or poetry or art, to kind of get over that uh, uh, that bias. And is that the reason, or can we say that's the reason that they managed maybe to reach a wider audience or wider readership maybe because they explored with different genres? It could be a reason, but I don't think it's the only reason. So a work such as Germander Stahl's Germany which is not literature, it's a study of German life, German thought, German culture, and towards the end, German metaphysics, um, was a widely popular book. It's definitely not literature, but when it was first published in France, it was published, the two volumes were published in 5,000 copies. And then Napoleon got nervous. He didn't like the fact that this powerful woman wrote about German um, German culture. So he had his troops um, basically storm the publishing house and destroy all the copies. And then it was published three years later. Later, but the book was enormously popular, even though it is definitely not literature. 
it is a book that at least the second half is 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 doing metaphysics and was perceived as doing metaphysics in the first reviews um uh, I'd like to talk about these individual, some of these individual philosophers that you have put into the book. But before that, can you tell us uh, what was the selection criteria? Was there an organizing principle in choosing these particular uh, philosophers in the book? Yes, there was. And this wasn't easy. So when we started, the we had a discussion with our editor in Oxford University Press about how thin a book could be because we didn't know how much we would find. So is it possible to publish a very slender volume on women philosopher? That was our first question. And then as we moved along, we realized that the material was vast. And our book now is called Women Philosophers in the Long 19th Century. We could have had a follow-up volume called More Women Philosophers in the Long 19th Century, and a third volume called Even More Women Philosophers in the 19th Century. And this would only be in the um, German-speaking area. So imagine if we had done this with including more of France, Italy, Scandinavia, England, and so on and so forth. So yes, we we had to be thoughtful about our selection because there was so much to choose from. We were being, I have to admit, a little bit pragmatic because our goal was to get this volume into classrooms, into people's hands. So we thought that we would start our work on 19th century women philosophers by finding texts that communicate with the great thinkers of the tradition that people already know. So the 19th century is just one of those periods that students and readers get incredibly excited about. You you read Hegel and you want more. You read Kant and you want more. You read Nietzsche and you will keep reading Nietzsche for the rest of your lives. So there is a broad interest in 19th century philosophy. And we thought we would tie into this interest and make a volume that would need minimal preparatory work for from instructors in order to be integrated into existing syllabi and that readers who are not in a an academic setting could pick up and they would see something that looked familiar and that would make them interested in in reading the work of, of these incredible women. And I think you can find plenty in this book. So I was really, really amazed by the breadth of knowledge and the, and the wide range of topics that are discussed. Some, some of them were really, really modern as well. They talk about the relation of humans with, uh, with, with, with the natural environment, the earth. Uh, we'll talk about it in a minute. Um, let's start with some of these philosophers. Uh, First person that you have in the book, Germain de Stahl, if I'm pronouncing your name correctly, you're going to bear with me because I'm sure I'm going to be butchering a lot of names. Uh, can you tell us about her philosophical feud with Napoleon and how it got her into trouble? And also another aspect of her book that I'm really interested in is that she inspired feminists and abolitionists, uh, even American transcendentalists. Uh, would be great if you could talk about her a bit. Yes, I'm happy to do that. So, Germaine de Stahl is one example of somebody who led a spectacular life. And there are so many biographies 
of Jomaine de Stal, this incredibly powerful woman um, who was, of course, born into privilege, got educated, turned into a political agent who was pulling the strings in um, in politics, really, during and after the French Revolution, and then was branded Napoleon's, one of his arch enemies. So he had her exiled from Paris and later from, from France. At the time, she was seen as so powerful that people half-jokingly would say there are three superpowers in the world right now. There is England, there is Russia, and then there is Germaine de Stahl. So, of course, this this story of her life, her un, uncompromising style, her turban, her dresses, everywhere she was um, um, invited to the parties, the salons, she traveled all over Europe, and she made quite a stir wherever she, she um, showed up. She traveled with her children and a tutor. And the tutor was none other than August Wilhelm Schlegel, who was a very renowned and famous philosopher in in her own right. So she had high ambitions for for her children um, and for herself. So we focus on her biography. But this lady, at age 22, published a quite astounding study of Jean-Jacques Rousseau in 1788. And then she goes on and publishes in 1796 an amazing, amazing work in moral psychology, where she deals in part with the phenomenon of fanaticism. What makes somebody a fanatic? What makes somebody lose their mind and follow a political leader? And what can we do about it? And After that, we have one philosophical work after the other, as it were, and even some posthumous texts. So even though she had a spectacular life, even though she was a bestseller as a novelist, she wrote at least two very, very famous novels, Corinne and Delphine. She was also a celebrated and very serious philosopher. We haven't given her philosophy the attention it deserves. And and, uh, she had a work on women's writers where she talks about the gender bias towards women as intellectual. Yes, she, that part of her work, um, the excerpts we have in our our book, our volume is from uh, a study, she, a study of literature and the social and political implications of literature. And in here, she writes about the reactions women encounter when they stand forth as serious intellectuals. How they get taken down, how people roll their eyes, how they're not meeting traditional gender expectations. And when I teach this material, this is a point where my students really recognize the abysmal situation she describes. I I was teaching Germaine de Stahl just three, four weeks ago, and we had a very intense discussion of 
whether or not the kind of situation, the kind of implicit bias smart women encounter, the kind of bias that makes them pretend maybe at times that they are not so smart because by being cute or a bit naive, um, they get more recognition. Um, And we were discussing for at least half an hour whether this is still the case. And the atmosphere in the classroom was that Jamenda Stahl had given a very, very good description of a social dialectic that the non-male students in my classroom all recognized. Fascinating. Uh, let's move on to the next uh, uh, next philosopher, uh, Caroline von Gundrold, am I right? Gundrold. Gundrold, yes. yeah. Yes. So how did he challenge? So you talk about a male philosopher who, uh, male philosopher who's kind of dismissive of uh, women. How did he, how did she challenge uh, Fitch's discussion of human, of human vocation? Yeah, so Gundrold is another of those philosophers whose life has his biography, very tragic biography, has gotten a lot of attention. She had a very short life. Um, she was born in 1780. She died in um, 1806. So she died or committed suicide at, at age 26. But for a period of two or three years, she was amazingly productive. She really packed a whole life's worth of philosophical work into two or three short lives. And one of the things she did in this period was to enter a discussion that was super important at the time about the vocation of the human. What is a human being for? What makes for a fulfilled human life? And one of the standard um, focuses of this tradition had been an emphasis on human freedom. And Carolina von Gintergrode goes into this with a critical attitude. And she is thinking about how freedom for her as a woman should not be seen as abstract or independent as of gender. Freedom will be a little different if you are a young woman from the kind of freedom that can be experienced by by men. So she she makes this simple point in very convincing philosophical terms, along with many other arguments that she has um, launches against um, Fichte and probably some some other philosophers at the time too. And she also wrote about Hughes' philosophical and religious ideas to highlight our moral responsibility towards our planet, the Earth. So that's the uh, one aspect of her work that I find fascinating. She is such a radical eco-philosopher, more radical than some of the positions we find today. And in this brief period where she did so much work, we even see her develop her position. So in the beginning, she seems to argue, or she argues, that we humans need to live 
and a life that doesn't harm the planet. And then towards the end of her short life, she gets more radical and suggests that we ought to live not only so that we don't harm the planet, but so that we make it possible for nature to prosper and thrive. So we need to give back to the nature that we are part of. And as you pointed out, she is interested in world religions. She thinks that the um, outlook of Christianity is um, too limited. She sees religions in plural as being part of one discourse, if you like. So she draws on Hinduism, for example, um, the idea of reincarnation in her work, in her philosophical work. And she does this oftentimes in a very intelligent and an inclusive way. Let's talk about the next philosopher, uh, Hedwig Dom, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly again. Do we want to talk uh, about Bettina Brentano von Arnim first? Yeah, yeah, please go ahead. We don't want to miss her. Uh, <laughs> no, we don't we want don't. to miss her because she <laughs> is another um, philosopher whose work is so surprising and so um, powerful. So, Bettina Brentano von Arnim is a philosopher who, maybe this sounds a little silly, but she makes me very, very happy. She writes with so much energy. Her texts really, um, it's like you can see her in work as a philosopher. She has so much on her mind and she wants to get it all out. And in the beginnings, she starts by writing dialogues um, with other philosophers, where she takes her correspondence with um, the, the poet and philosopher Goethe first and turns that into a book. Um, so the real correspondence had been there. She turns it into something different. She edits it. She adds her own reflection. Um, she um, thinks about Goethe's mother, who was an intellectual powerhouse in her own right, and so on and so forth. And then she moves on to her friend, Caroline von Günderode, who had then um, been been dead for for a while, and um, because suicide at the time was not talked about, her life and her work was hushed down a little bit, and Brentano von Arnim would not have none of that. So she takes her correspondence with Günderode, and she turns it into this phenomenal work of philosophy and poetry and correspondence between two women called Günderode. And then she keeps going with a few more books based on correspondence. And then she um, turns to more political philosophy, writes about poetry, for example. Um, she is seen at the time as a fairly radical voice when um, Günterode came out. This was celebrated by the students in Berlin with a torch parade. Her later work on poverty, for example, caught the interest of none other than Karl Marx, who at one point met um, Rantano von Arnim, and apparently they went for, for a walk. And we can only you know, wonder and, and, and ask what they could have talked about.
Uh, well, she's one philosopher that I actually never heard of until I came across her name in the book. And uh, I confess I hadn't included a question about her in the book, so it's great that you, you, you talked about her. Uh, how about uh, Hedwig Dom? Uh, again, please correct me if I'm mispronouncing the name. She exposed the misogyny and philosophical ideas of her male uh, counterparts, such as Kant or Fritsch or Nietzsche. Can you uh, talk about how she kind of challenged maybe their ideas of women? She definitely challenged the misogyny in much philosophy of her time and in much of the culture of her time. So like Brentano von Arnim, Hedwig Dom started publishing in earnest after her children were, well, after she lost her husband, actually. Um, she had five children. Um, she was herself um, one out of 18 children. Um, she wrote a few more traditional texts, and then she starts on her big feminist campaign. And it is quite a campaign. She really wants to hold misogynists responsible for their views. She has an incredibly um, critical, ironical, and funny text about Nietzsche and women, for example. She writes about how Nietzsche, on the one hand, will see um, women as primarily in terms of their ability to, to reproduce and have children. On the other hand, Nietzsche is writing about the the superhuman, the exceptional genius, presumably a male. And Hedwig Dom does the math and figures out that a woman can maybe have, I don't know, she came from a family of 18 children and knew what life with 18 kids was like. And she starts thinking about what this poor, lonely genius, if he gets married and has a bunch of children, how on earth is he going to be able to support this family? How is he going to find the peace of mind to write his work? And so on and, and so forth. Um, she's ironic. She's even sarcastic at times. Um, maybe that's not okay. Maybe it is okay in the context where she was, where she was writing, but she definitely uses humor as a way to promote her philosophical points in a non-moralizing way. Even though she writes about very, very serious topics. Uh, I think it's very timely to talk about Clara Zetkin, and uh, a couple of days ago it was International Women's Day, and. Was checking Twitter, I came across uh, Dalia Nasser's uh, tweet that Oxford University, I think it's still free online, has made chapter eight of your book accessible, which is about Clara, Clara Zetkin, who played an important role in, uh, in let's say, creating this International Women's Day. But anyway, can, can you tell us a little about her and how, because she was one of those uh, women, I, I could be wrong, but this is what I've read somewhere that she was against feminists because she saw she thought that the feminist concerns were more about upper class women but she saw 
that's uh, like she's she 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 was actually more concerned with female workers and uh, she she thought that uh, women's movement is not any separate from or is not any different from workers' movement. So I, you know, I would appreciate if you could talk about her a bit. Yes, I'm happy to talk about Clara Zetkin and um, as you said a few days ago was. The International Women's Day and Clara Zetkin was instrumental in in making that um, March eighth um, the International Women's Day. But as you point out, Zetkin wanted to think about feminism in the context of socialism. So she was very clear that the situation of women was not okay. This goes for middle-class women, and it goes for women of the working classes. And then, of course, the question is, how can we best respond to this? And for Zetkin, especially in the beginning of her writing, the best way to respond to this is to take as a point of departure the historical moment where women gain financial or economical independence. Women can go out and make money. They can be independent of their fathers, their brothers, and their husbands. She thinks for the first time in history with industrial work. Then then we have women working in big numbers. Of course, we've had women work before, but now we have women really contributing to the workforce in a major way. And at this point, women gain something. They gain financial independence. But she also worries that they go into a new kind of oppression. This time, oppression as workers. So all of a sudden, we have a situation, she suggests, where women are potentially being oppressed or treated in... um, unwanted ways at home. And then in the workplace, there is a new kind of oppression, both a class oppression, because women are workers, and workers, as she sees it, being a socialist, are potentially oppressed. And as women in the workforce, they're not being treated in the same way as male workers, by their co-workers, or by um, their their bosses. But it is because the new, because the, the potential for freedom is for Clara Zetkin with economical freedom, we have to focus on women's status as workers. And this for her was where the feminist movement should um, invest their energy. Liberate women as workers and you will liberate women in general was her position early on. So at, at that point in her um, in her works from, for example, a speech she gave in, in Stuttgart in um, 1889, she's not even sure if it's right for feminists to focus so much on um, on voting rights, on suffrage. She fears that if we focus on suffrage, universal suffrage, we might end up in a situation where women get the right to vote, but still experiences many other informal, cultural, and work-related forms of 
oppression. So for her, voting rights were important, but she warned against a one-sided focus on suffrage alone. Um, how about Lou, uh, Lou Salome? She she was one of the f- uh, first female philosophers who wrote about the relation between erotic and art creativity and even religion. Uh, can you talk about uh, her philosophical ideas a little? I can, but I have to just if I'm allowed, say a few words about her biography, because she's, again, an example of somebody we have been, we've seen her as a muse. She was very close to Nietzsche. He was probably madly in love with her. She was very close to the poet, um, Aina Maria Rilke. And the fact that she was, and then later in her life, she was very close to Sigmund Freud. These men all admire her work, but the way she has been perceived by the, um, in in history is through her biography and as a muse for male geniuses. She was, however, a very independent-minded and original thinker, and one of her main books is called, as you say, The Erotic. It was a work that she was commissioned to write. Uh, Martin Buber, another um, famous philosopher, asked her to to write this study of the erotic. And she here produces this really interesting idea of eroticism being much more than sexualized eroticism. Our whole embodied being is to a certain extent, in an erotic being. We are, as embodied, relating to other human beings, relating to nature, um, as erotic creatures. So she's taking this notion of the erotic, expanding it, and offering a new, important discussion of human embodiedness. And this is a difficult book, but a book that it is worth spending time on. Mm. And I guess uh, your entry in the book provides a good, not only to this philosopher, but also to others, it provides a good entry point for, for, for others to kind of venture into female philosophy to know what, what ideas or what topics they covered in their, in their works. Um, to, uh, let's, let's talk about Lou, uh, Lou Salome, if, uh, uh, if we can't, and her ideas of, she had a work called The Erotic, so the idea of eroticism and its relationship to art and creativity. Well, so she was, I mean, one of the provocative claims she has in this um, this book called The Erotic is that our erotic longings are the origin origins of aesthetic creativity, artistic creativity, but also of our religious longings. So she leads religion back to what she calls our erotic being. And as you can imagine, this was quite provocative at the time. Um, Unlike Nietzsche, she takes... No, this is not right, actually. Nietzsche takes, even though he has that 
famous or infamous claim God is dead, he always takes religion seriously in one way or other. But Louis Salome has a different respect for religion. She, um, she started out being quite religious. She is always interested in the nature of religion. Um, she writes a book called The God um, that is also very interesting. But she, at the end of the day, she traces this back to our finite human nature and how we are dealing with our definitive of, of human life, which is related to the fact that we are embodied. Uh, there's Edith Stein in your book. She had, uh, I came across it a couple of years ago. She had a very, very tragic life and tragic death, unfortunately. Uh, so I'm sure our listeners would be interested to know more about Edith Stein and her, a little bit about her life and also I think she, she she had a PhD, am I right? She even taught in university for some time. Yeah. So she so, was uh, one of those women who got the first out of the two PhDs that um, you could get in Germany. So she ended her, I mean, she was m- murdered in the concentration camp as um, as a Jew, even though she had, um, she had, um, converted to Catholicism at the time, but she was she was murdered, so her life ended in a very brutal and tragic way. But the beginning of her life was was not at all tragic. So she's an example of a new generation of women who could actually go to university. So she started her studies, she studied literature, she studied history, and then she came across the works of Edmond Husserl. And she knew from that point that she really wanted to be a philosopher, and she wanted to go study with with Husserl. And she did. And she worked very closely with with Husserl. She was teaching some introductory classes. Um, She was editing his manuscripts. And again, Unfortunately, she was seen for many, many years as his, as Husserl's secretary, helper, assistant, um, but not as an original philosopher in her own right. That, I think, is a thing of the past. With Edith Stein, we have somebody who has, for quite a while now, been celebrated as a very important philosopher whose um, discussion of, of empathy really fills out the space in this movement called phenomenology that nobody else quite quite did um the last philosopher you talk in the book is gerda walther and I, again i must confess my ignorance that i have never come across her name i'm just trying to emphasize how important the book is to our listeners so uh, how does she she was a socialist philosopher and also uh she she also had some writings on phenomenology so can you Tell us how she highlighted the common ground between socialist philosopher and phenomenological movements, and how did she define social community? Good questions. So let me say a little bit about the phenomenological movement first, because not everyone is perhaps familiar with it. So the phenomenological movement was a turn back to the an attempt to philosophize in a way that takes human experience extremely seriously. And the most famous 
practitioners um, or founders of um, of this line of thought um, would be Edmund Husserl and then later his um, student Martin Heidegger. And with Heidegger, we know today that he was a committed member of the National Socialist Party in Germany. So for those of us who appreciate phenomenology and want to teach phenomenology, if we're teaching the work of Martin Heidegger, we have this awful situation of teaching the work of a national socialist. Now, the traditional understanding of this movement has been that it was rather apolitical. And with Gerda Walter, whose work I too hadn't come across until Dalia Nassar and I started this work on, uh, on trying to rehabilitate the women of the 19th century, um, Gerda Walter comes to phenomenology from a clear and uncompromising socialist background. She gets to Göttingen to study with Husserl, and Husserl isn't sure what to do with her because she has such strong commitments to political philosophy and socialism. So what he does is to send her to study with Edith Stein for a little bit, and Edith Stein is tasks, tasked with um, with the job of finding out if Gerda Walter is, is good enough, as it were, to be, um, to be a student of Husserl. And Edith Stein gives her thumbs up, says, says that she is definitely good enough, and Gerda Walter goes on to write this um, work on social communities. So she's, she writes a study about what it is to have and experience a real community with somebody else. If you have a group of people in the same room, for example, a class of philosophy students, maybe 20 20 students meeting once a week, they talk about philosophy. They um, nod to each other when they see each other in the corridors outside of the classroom. they know each other's names, but maybe they don't know that much more about each other. Is this group a real social community? Or is it just a bunch of individuals who are trying to understand, let's say, the works of women 19th century philosophers in the um, in the German tradition? At what point, asked Gerda Walter, do we move from having a bunch of individuals to having genuine social bonds to others. And she discusses this in a way that is both engaging and that will have most of us, I think, think about the kind of intersubjective contexts we're in, um, at work, in our families, with friends, maybe in our political um, activities, and so on and so forth. But she was, to my knowledge, um, one of the few phenomenologists who had a political engagement um, that was leftish rather than being um, national socialist like, like Heidegger each time. 
Heidegger attended her lectures for a while, even. Yes. Uh, we have sort of talked about uh, all of the philosophers you've included in the book, except one. Well, my thing is the most famous one and the most known one. And I think before, I mean, I kind of paused the interview to, to kind of get your permission to ask it to talk about uh, Rosa Luxemburg. Um, she's the most famous one of mine, uh, the philosophers you've included here. But I, as, as we talked about at the beginning, we tend to know more about her, her life and her tragic death, unfortunately. Uh, can you talk, tell us a little bit about her philosophical ideas as well? I'm happy to do that. So again, we know, for example, that Rosa Luxemburg was was murdered, uh, tragically murdered, at at the peak of her life in 1919, um, partly for her political commitments, partly for her pacifism and resistance to the war. Um, she is also somebody who had a PhD but her PhD was in political economy. She went to the University of Zurich, where women could actually study. Um, Lou Salome also had a shorter stint there, uh, but did not. Lou Salome came from Russia, had a shorter stint in Zurich, studied philosophy, and then she discontinued her studies. Rosa Luxemburg came from Poland, studied philosophy and zoology in other subjects, and then went on to get a PhD in um, economics. Then she wanted to go to Germany. She um, married, got German citizenship, and she continued her career as a thinker who stands in the socialist tradition, but whose work has ramifications beyond, um, I think, that tradition or line of thought alone. Um, she is a Marxist who criticizes the, some Marxists' willingness to let party politics be guided by an elite, a party elite. She wants socialism to be a grassroots movement. She talks about um, the global aspirations of capitalism, how capitalism is going to move on until there isn't a single corner of the world, our life world and the globe, that hasn't been annexed by capitalism. She brings to, to Marxism new and, and refreshing perspectives that we should take seriously as as philosophers. Um, Dr. Christian Yesdol, thank you very much for your time. I absolutely enjoyed this conversation. To me, it was the, the whole book was an eye-opener, and I'm sure to our listener, listeners, this podcast uh, would do the same. Thank you so much.